0: This was definitely probably one of the coolest interviews that I've ever done. Um, You're about to listen to my interview with Dr. Imam out of Dallas, Texas. He's a weight loss and obesity physician. He's triple board certified. One of his certifications is obesity medicine. You are about to listen to two weight loss doctors um, that are both also certified personal trainers. We are both certified personal trainers as well. So we come from a world and a background of teaching people how to lose weight without medications, diet, exercise, lifestyle, all of that. And in addition to that, we both are obesity medicine physicians and practice uh, using medications to help our patients lose weight. Now, obviously, we don't just jump to medications. By the time a patient comes to us and needs to lose weight, At that point in time, they've kind of tried everything else. We'll do a very in detailed diet and exercise history to find out if they have tried everything or not. And then we can add on medications. And we talk a lot about the medications we use, what order we use them in. We discussed the gut microbiome and what role it plays. We talked about hormones, what role hormone plays. We talked about obesity in general and what causes obesity. Is it the calories? Is it the diet? Is it exercise? You know, what is it that originally causes obesity and why it's so prevalent now compared to previously when it wasn't as prevalent? You guys are in for a treat. My podcast listeners get to get listen to this first, um, and then eventually the video version will be on YouTube. So go hop over to YouTube if this has been out for a while, and you can watch the entirety of the YouTube version of it. Um, again, this podcast doesn't grow without your help. We're already at like 2,500, uh, some odd, uh, downloads, leave some awesome reviews. We cracked the top 20 in medicine almost in the first week and the top 200 in fitness also almost in the first week. Um, so please get out there, write some reviews and you guys just listen to this. You are in for an amazing, awesome treat. All right, there we go. Okay, so we'll get started. <laughs> Sorry about that. All right, so welcome, Dr. Imam, to the show. It's awesome to have you on here. Um, obviously, you are a weight loss doctor out of, based out of Dallas, uh, Texas. Why don't you give me a brief introduction about yourself and what you do and where your practice is located, and then we'll get into all the weight loss stuff.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm a, I'm a board certified in three specialties, internal medicine, obesity medicine, and allergy, asthma, and immunology. I work Pretty much like half my time in allergy, asthma, and immunology, which essentially means like treating allergic diseases and desensitizing them and treating respiratory illnesses and things like that related to allergies and overactivity of the immune system. And then I have other interest in obesity medicine for which I work around the other half of the time. Um, I've been doing obesity medicine for about five years. So even prior to the GLP ones being kind of a mainstream and more popular. Um, and before that, I was a personal trainer, did that throughout undergrad. So familiar with like the uh, the. Uh, bodybuilding world i guess in that sense and uh mixed martial artists so did a lot of Brazilian jiu jitsu jeet kundo boxing all that good stuff as well so kind of really you know really got into like the Rogan crowd uh for a while as well uh so kind of a mix of all that so um yeah where's your office located so we have uh two locations uh the second location just got opened up but we have one in what's uh irving which is a a, a closer to downtown dallas and then one in arlington which is gonna be where the FIFA World Cup uh, finals are gonna be next to FIFA. So, oh, and wow. yeah, right, right next to the Rangers stadium, they just won the World Series.
0: That's, that's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of cool to know because I'm also a certified personal trainer and I'm like super into weight loss. And and obviously the, I've been doing it longer. And when I started, we didn't have any GLP ones. We didn't have anything. Um, we just had all the old diethylpropion, fentermine Bietta came out, but it wasn't "quote unquote" a weight loss drug. It was the first uh, GLP. Um, I always ask my uh, my uh, people that are following me when I'm doing a live: Do you know where the GLP ones came from? <laughs> like Ozempic, Wigovi, Bietta, Trulicity, Victoza, Saxenda. Do you know the the origin of these? It's a very naturally occurring substance.
1: Yeah, it's the uh, the venom of like a, a lizard, right? Like a, a- lizard. Yeah, yeah. It's a
0: venom. it's a venom of the Gila monster. It's a lizard in Arizona. The guy was trying to patent or sell the drug for a very long time, like since like the nineties and no one was buying it. And then it was called Xenotide. I think his last name was Eni Dr. Eni or something like that. Or he's a mm-hmm. scientist. No one was buying it. So then finally a company did and they made byetta and it did really well. The original concerns were that it's the only reason it's causing weight loss is people were so nauseated and like mm-hmm. they couldn't eat. But then they, you know, like did a long, you know, research study and found out that that's not the case. More people were losing weight than the amount of people that were actually getting nausea. So the people that dropped out of the study, I think it was like 14% of people dropped out, but the amount of people that were losing weight was like 30 to 40% of people. So like, you know, that that doesn't correlate. It's not that. It's not that they're so nauseated and so full. There's got to be more to it. Yeah. So you, you go on.
1: Oh yeah yeah we definitely uh there's like a lot of mice studies too where they actually just inject the drug drug into the brain as opposed to letting it go on uh, the periphery and they still they lose the same amount of weight so it's definitely working centrally as opposed to just being like slowing down the gut and making them nauseous it looks like the nausea is also central as well because when you inject the mice in the head uh directly into the brain so the drug doesn't really go in the periphery they still get nauseated so the nausea also seems like it's uh pretty central as well that's why it, it gets better with time
0: yeah, it seems like there's something magical about these drugs, and I don't, I don't know about you, but I, we, I've seen, and maybe we'll get into this. I, I posted a recent podcast about it, but people are having like massive amounts of weight loss with certain combinations of these drugs, and maybe we'll get into. I had a guy lose like 130 pounds almost in like since April. Like literally, I saw him a few weeks ago. 130 pounds gone since April. Now, obviously, he's starting at a much higher weight. He was like 470 ish, and now he's oh, yeah. 320, 326. So you know, obviously, not everyone's going to lose a hundred pounds if you don't have a hundred pounds to lose. But we'll get into that. So you're you're obesity medicine certified. Tell me what that is and, and what that what that means. Yeah. So
1: essentially, after your so essentially, when you finish medical school, you're going to end up having to do a primary specialty. So that means either general surgery, internal medicine, pediatrics, whatever that is. After you do any general specialty, you're eligible to take continuing medical educations. Um, I forgot how many credits you have to take. I think maybe sixty to hundred hours, something like that, and then you can qualify. For taking the exam. And then the exam is just uh, like a typical board exam. You go into a prometric and you take the exam. And essentially, if you pass the exam, you become a PC certified, then you have to keep up with a certain number of CMEs to remain with the certification. So um, because it doesn't have to do a lot more training in inpatient for right now, it might develop as a fellowship later on now that there's more and more drugs. So, you know, when it becomes um I'm doing a lot more down coming down the pipeline, so it might require a fellowship in the future.
0: So talk, talk to me about weight loss. Let's like back up a little bit. Why do, why do people gain weight? Like, I know we have this huge obesity epidemic. If you look at the statistics, 72, maybe up to 80% of people are overweight. About 40% are obese. Um, children age five to 19 are also like almost 20% uh, overweight. Um, talk to me about that. Why do humans gain weight? Maybe the science behind it, the hormones, everything. Just give us a background information. Why do people gain weight?
1: yeah that's actually a much more complicated uh question because of there's so many different mechanisms after you've consumed food and what the body does in order to channel that food into different areas of the body or what it's going to do with that you know in terms of uh, making a person gain weight um it really does kind of come down to calories eventually a person will have to consume more energy than they are burning off and that energy will then be stored as excess fat in order for the body to have that energy whenever there's a famine in the future in a sense but the issue is, is that why are people suddenly Uh, in the last 30, 40 years, starting to gain significantly more weight than they used to in the past. And it seems to be that, um, we have access to a lot more food than we used to have. The food tastes a lot different, a lot better. Uh, I guess you can make the argument it tastes better, but it it is hyper palatable. It can cover its lack of nutrition. So it's much more processed than it used to be in the past. Um, we have, um, it's extremely convenient. It's extremely ubiquitous. So, uh, starting to cut it out of our diet, uh, is difficult. It's a, it's, we have new cultural round food. Uh, because of its ubiquitous nature. And then you compile that with, um, the idea that we also are, are, uh, the, 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 the foods itself might start, are starting to act like a, like almost like a drug to us. So they have almost like addictive like properties. And, um, so we're essentially, because of all that combined, we're essentially starting to consume more than we used to consume, more than we need. And it's essentially elevating our fat set point and making us gain weight over time. And that elevation has to do with the food itself and other factors that might be affecting our lifestyle, such as, lack of exercise or uh, different sleeping habits, and um, sometimes medical conditions or medications that we might be inducing weight gain with accidentally over time.
0: So talk about this uh, obesity set point or the weight set point. What is, Tell us more about that, because I know there was a book written by Dr. George Blackburn out of Harvard called How to Break Through Your Set Point or, you know, breaking through your, your set point. Talk about that. What is that and what does it mean?
1: Yeah, so essentially, it, the the body adapts its metabolism and it adapts uh, to um, you trying to cut your calories for too long or increase your calories. Uh, so your 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 body kind of settles at this range, kind of like an equilibrium, where it, it that's the weight that your body's kind of comfortable with, with the multiple variables that it's that are coming in. So let's say, for example, you start uh, uh, walking half an hour a day, you're going to lose a little bit of weight. Possibly, you're burning a little bit more calories, but essentially, you're going to reach a new equilibrium. And you're not going to lose weight. No matter what intervention you do, you're never going to gain weight indefinitely nor lose weight indefinitely. You're just going to reset that range that you're going to kind of go into. Um, and that range can vary for individuals. And that's what we call kind of the body set, set point. If you try to break through it, let's say you try to lose weight, then you'll start feeling a pressure to try to regain that weight back. That pressure can be with increased hunger, uh, increased palatability of food, food starts to taste better, or uh, metabolic adaptations where your basal metabolic rate starts to actually decrease so that you are um, essentially burning less calories per day out of your control and then making it more and more difficult not to start to regain the weight so we have studies kind of out of kevin hall's group with like uh the biggest loser showing metabolic adaptation um uh the biggest loser was like a tv show where they were like really strict on getting to to go into extreme calorie deficits and essentially they start to gain the weight back and they can see that their weight gain back was partly caused by this metabolic adaptation despite the fact they were putting in a lot of effort and then we also know that like the hunger and the kind of the, the food noise starts becoming really loud in someone's head uh, and making it very difficult to maintain a, a, a diet um, for a very long period of time. If they kind of get through that set point point. and it has to do with multiple variables, like if a person is like asleep, they might start to go up. Uh, and uh, yeah, essentially the medications are working in a sense to lower that fast set point, making it easier to lose weight. But even with the medications, you won't lose the weight indefinitely. You're still going to hit like a new set point in a sense.
0: Yeah. And I think the first time I I read about the set point was when they, when I was reading about the Vermont prison experiment, (laughs) Oh, yeah. you're not allowed to do experiments on prisoners anymore, but essentially for those who don't know, they took half the inmates and they overfed them and half the inmates and they underfed them. Super controlled environment. You know, you can't leave prison, right? It's almost like a metabolic ward study, but with non-paid volunteers. I don't even know if they're volunteering, you know, it's coercion maybe at that point. But they found that, you know, the group that ate less lost weight, the group that ate more gained weight, and then they left them alone. And then they, they all got back to their starting weight um, when you just kind of left them alone. Their body just readapted, told them, send hun- hunger signals to one, satiety signals to the other, and they all regained their weight back. So then how does somebody break through their set point? Like, let's say you've always been 220 pounds and you don't want to be 220 pounds. How do you break through that and not have your body defend that higher weight?
1: Yeah, I think that's difficult. I mean, as you're, what, what do you normally do as a personal trainer, I guess, uh, when you're dealing with your patients?
0: So normally from, from George Blackburn's uh, book and studies, he found that if you if you can get the person to a lower weight, however you do that, you can have them try to exercise it off, eat less, whatever. You know, it's a calorie deficit mainly. But if mm-hmm. you can get people down to 180 and keep them there for at least six months— then that'll be like the new defended body weight or the new set point. Their body will try to stay around 180. You know, they were 220, they got to 180, they stayed there for at least six months minimum. He says even nine months sometimes. That if you can get to like a new body weight and stay there for a long time, then you're less likely to have your, you know, uh, defensive mechanisms on your body try to fight you back up to and back to the higher weight. So and the same right. thing in reverse if you went down to 160 or you went up to like 260 and you you left them alone for six months at the new 260 your body would now defend the 260 instead of back to 220.
1: Gotcha um so we typically the way we typically approach it is we and I, I what we're doing is we're kind of compiling different studies because we know for example studies on improved sleep help with weight loss uh people with exercise um exercise in itself doesn't burn that many calories however people who do exercise are more successful at weight loss and maintaining that weight um things like studies with the microbiome seeing that uh, diets that have um foods that are better for the microbiome do cause more of a calorie deficit that is able to be maintained with satiety signals still being elevated uh, despite the fact that they're more in a calorie deficit so we try to combine all of that as different variables and we look at the fat set point as that your brain is kind of looking at all the variables in the environment and if you try to kind of perfect each one of these variables it might help you break through a plateau until you get to a reasonable weight um so part of it for us is kind of defining what is a reasonable weight so if i'm trying to if i'm talking to like a bodybuilder who's trying to get like to 5% body fat this is this competitive weight is not something that i'm specialized in there and this is not something that a normal person can can sustain for a long period of time because they've gone too far away from that set point uh, but also if somebody's morbidly obese, their body doesn't typically want to be morbidly obese. So getting them down, it's more, it's easier to maintain them. So like you had mentioned, like your, your client who had lost like a hundred pounds and they were about 400 pounds. So they might find it easier to maintain at 300 pounds, despite their health might be significantly improved than somebody maintaining at a 4%. So, um, we kind of try to fix these variables all at a at one by one while inducing a calorie deficit that's reasonable for them to maintain. Once the calorie deficit is kind of resumed, we want those variables to stay in place, like the improved sleep, the eating, uh, choosing whole food options, things like that. So they they remain sensitive to the satiety signals. And then we kind of, uh, uh, and then we use medications if we need to. And then uh, we do try to sustain it for a period of time. For us, we find that four months is kind of the golden period. Not four months, meaning that their fat set point has reset technically, and they can go back to bad eating habits again in four months. But more that four months is about enough time for us to find that people have just their, their, um their palate, what they find tasty. Uh, I mean, if I know if I cut out, for example, a Pepsi for four months, if I go back and drink it again, it's going to taste like battery acid. Uh, and then it's going to take some time for me to get used to it again. And then suddenly it's going to start tasting sweeter. And then all of a sudden the carrots and the fruits are going to taste uh, less sweet. So it takes for us about four months for them to adjust their eating habits and then get used to the new way to eat. Like, okay, this is how what's most convenient. This is uh, the food I do like that's healthy. This is the food I don't like that's healthy and kind of allowing a person to experiment while they're under supervision. Uh, And then uh, once we stop, then usually as long as they can maintain those new habits and they don't go back to how they were before, uh, hopefully they usually maintain the weight. For the most part, they go within a range like my loser gain about five pounds. But uh, usually at that point, they're able to maintain that makes sense.
0: So you talked about calorie deficit at what, what kind of a calorie deficit do you shoot for Does it depend on the patient's starting weight or do you, do you have a formula you use? Like how like somebody comes to you and they're 285 pounds and they're like, I want to lose weight doc. What is your approach? What do you, how do you approach the patient? Assuming they got sent to you because, you know, they kind of tried most other things. So they, they come to you and like, how do you decide the calorie deficit? And then at what point do you decide to add on or not add on medications? Like, what is your approach? Pretend I'm a brand new patient. I'm 280 pounds. And I want to lose some weight.
1: Sure. So we general we generally develop certain rules that we have. That those rules are foods that we do like them to cut out completely because it makes it very difficult for them to count their calories. Uh, so, for example, if you take a food and you have it deep fried, your calorie counts on those food is gonna be very difficult to actually have because you don't really know how much oil was absorbed, how much water was displaced uh, of the food. Uh, so, if you were saying like I'm gonna have I don't know a donut for example, like that's the size of the donut, even if it's one donut is like 10 grams heavier than the other that might be a substantial difference in the calories because you dehydrated the donut and added a lot so uh, so um we usually ask them there are certain foods that we want kind of i don't like to say an absolute no no but like there's certain foods that we really would like to remove as much as we can and those are usually liquid calories such as soft drinks that aren't diet for example and foods that are deep fried uh, and uh and um uh and then we want to kind of watch the salad dressings uh the oils and dressings that can be added to things because those can You can, if you, if you make a mistake and you add an extra tablespoon of olive oil, you're going to wildly throw off your calories. But if you add in like an extra four ounces of strawberries, you're probably not going to wildly throw off your calories at that point.
0: So So, do you, do you give them a number? Do you say this is what we're shooting for in terms of calories or not really?
1: We find that that's not helpful because usually by the time someone has chosen to come to us, we're going to be more expensive than, than um, what they probably attempted. They probably already attempted counting calories and normally they attempt using MyFitnessPal they put in like a calorie deficit in my fitness pal and they start scanning everything. We do, we, um we do have them send us pictures of their meals. And we find that they wildly uh, misestimate their calories wildly, like they're way off. Uh, so we, we don't find it to be that beneficial. We find it. It's more beneficial that if we can remove certain foods and then give them meals that they like, and they just keep eating these consistent meals. And if they're not losing weight, we just chip away at that meal that they already like. So if you like tacos, so give, for- me,
0: so give me an example of what that looks like.
1: So let's because say I,
0: I usually have because the reason is I usually have my patients do my fitness pal or some kind of tracking, like listen, right. either take pictures of your food, use like one of those picture apps or track in my fitness pal or something. You just need to get an idea of how much you're actually eating. And I, my philosophy is even if they're tracking wrong, they're at least yeah. tracking and we can adjust it. Let's say they track that they ate 5000 calories, but really it was only 4000. When we tell right. them cut it to 4,000, they're really tracking and eating maybe 3,500. But for them, the way, in the way that they're tracking, as long as they do it consistently, even if it's off by 20%, 30%, at least we know we did cut it. Or if they're starting to gain weight, you know, same thing in the opposite direction. So how, right. do, you, how do you, I guess, approach that?
1: So after we've already removed deep fried foods and uh liquid calories and then we kind of teach them how to watch out for the oils uh and dressings and things like that and sometimes we give them a shopping list of where to replace things we find that they already starting kind of losing weight at that point in time um but let's say for example we're looking at their meals and, and at, for in the morning they're having like i don't know eggs and bacon having like three eggs and two pieces of bacon and then for lunch they're having like a sandwich and then at dinner they're having some type of usually some kind of carbs some kind of vegetable, some kind of protein for example and we find that they're not really losing weight. Then we look at the meal. We just say, all right, so let's try to get 20% of these calories out. So we'll say, hey, for that sandwich, let's let's watch the dressing. Let's switch off the mayo for mustard, for example. That morning, those two eggs and that two pieces of bacon, let's we really get it down to two eggs and, and three pieces of bacon. Or let's add an additional egg and take out one of the pieces of bacon because uh, of the fat content of the bacon. And then for, for dinner, uh, let's increase the protein content and decrease maybe a little bit of the carb content, increase the vegetable content. Just doing something like that, like rearranging the food very slightly. Makes it feel like it's not that limiting, but then at the same time we have decreased the caloric content about twenty percent. We do what we might incorporate intermittent fasting depending on their on their uh, lifestyle. So sometimes they'll be like, "Listen, honestly, I don't really like breakfast that much. I don't have time. I'd rather really have a cup of coffee and be out the door. I feel like breakfast is the most important meal of the day." And we like, well, you know what? Let's just cut out breakfast then because it might be more convenient for you. For I, I'm I'm like that. I would rather just skip breakfast altogether, and that will put me in a calorie deficit because um, I'm usually out the bar- door by six a.m. You know, seeing patients, pretty busy. And then by lunchtime, I'm okay having a meal then. So we might so, rearrange that time that way. So
0: you don't you don't actually uh, so no calorie counts. You just tell them cut this, cut that, cut this, cut that. But the problem is, I think at least from what I've seen, and I don't know how successful it is. Maybe it works in the way that you present it. But your body obviously has like these you know defensive mechanisms. They start. Mm-hmm. You tell somebody cut this out, cut that out, cut that out. Now they've created a calorie deficit of a thousand calories, let's say, or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and you are they're they're losing weight they're losing weight i find that usually after about a month or so their body's like "Mm, we've lost like 20 pounds or 15 whatever it is you know we got it we don't want to do this we got to gain our weight back and it starts sending the hunger signals again and they maybe are not not as strict with what they're doing they feel like they're on cruise control and they, they slowly gain the weight back we we see that a lot so how do you mitigate that
1: so um, that that is a pro- I think a problem across the board. I think nobody can get really get around that problem. One of the ways that we try to mitigate it is that we just try to increase the exertion r- along the way. So we've already where we know that they're going to rebound the moment they stop the diet. So that's what part of the reason why we haven't been a huge fan of calorie counting. I'm not trying to say it doesn't work. It does work to do. It's just the hmm. issue is that um, uh, as a person, I used to calorie count myself. Usually about three months in, you really start to burn out from doing it. Uh, and sometimes even when you're calorie counting, you start creating a list of foods you don't want to have anyway. So you kind of realize that you're like, dang, cucumbers are really low in calories. But like if yeah, I have uh, olive oil, so you just start like putting out that food altogether. So just easier, someone just tells you, you know, like, let's just skip the three months of you experimenting. Let let me let me tell you that, like, hey, that 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 salad dressing, that's gonna add in calories really quickly without making you sit, uh, you know, full. But those eggs or, or chicken breast is gonna be really filling. So just kind of like, we're, we're going to kind of get to the same conclusion anyway. So we just try to give them kind of a heads up on that conclusion. But um, the rebound effect. So, for, but it
0: sounds like, it sounds like, yeah, so the, so they're doing it. They're doing what you say. Mm-hmm. They lose the first 15, 20 pounds. And as time goes on, that weight starts to creep back up again. What do you do then? So, Before um, medication. So assuming right now, no medications, nothing.
1: Yeah. So typically, we we if as long as you're doing the, the kind of the triangle, triangles kind of sleep, diet, and exercise. So if you're doing all three of them together, typically the body recom helps with the motivation of it. And we we do have a a pretty good weight loss. Now, usually if they if they skip one of the three, if the sleep goes poorly, if the exercise goes poorly, the diet usually kind of falls apart as well. So we feel like we do all three together and we can keep those consistently going. Then they all kind of feed each other as they're starting to lose the weight. If they start creeping up, we we typically don't see the creep up happening. If a person is sleeping well and hitting the exercise well, and they're still pretty cognizant of their calories, they really have to give out all at once to kind of have that weight kind of uh, creep up for us more substantially. Uh, But typically we find them when they get to an equilibrium, if they're still not losing or or they're getting, getting to a plateau, we we sometimes try to find a place to break that plateau. We might increase the calories slightly, maintain them there for a period of time, just so they have that uh, relief and then go back into a deficit again. So that's one possibility that we might do. The other is we might change their. That's
0: usually called a reverse diet, right? Like a reverse diet or go back into a maintenance phase, you know, you know, a diet break, you know, take a break from your diet it's mentally tough it's physically tough it's exhausting
1: Just right
0: take a break increase your calories and have a little more fun and move on for, for exactly. a few months.
1: right exactly we do that. Uh,
0: i've done that with a lot of people and it really works it kind of like resets them mentally because it's hard to like stick to a restriction obviously
1: yeah it is exhausting uh so that that's it tell me about the sleep thing what what is with this what's with the sleep thing what do you tell them So we want them to sleep at least seven, eight hours a night. So we really emphasize the seven hours or more a night. I mean, we've had people. And
0: how does that, what's the mechanism of that? How does that kick in? Obviously, I'm all about science. So I know there's a lot of people out there like, well, you just need to sleep and you'll lose weight. Like, no, yeah, that's just nonsense. You also have to restrict calories. You have to do a lot of what you're you're saying too. But like, what is that? How does that work?
1: Well, if you look at the studies, when you look at like the semaclutide studies, when they try to put them in a moderate deficit, so they put the placebo group and the and the group into a, a deficit. The placebo group was doing 500 calorie deficit per day and the control and the medication group was doing 500 calorie deficit per day, but they lost the weight. They lost 15%. And then the other group didn't lose as much as them. When they did it more restrictive, they did the study again more restrictively. One of them was doing 1,200 calories per day. The sumacotide group still beat them. They still, they still were able to eat 15% less. So the question is, is that, so does that mean that counting calories and cutting calories doesn't cause weight loss? No, it just means that they weren't compliant. The 1,200 calories, they were unlikely eating 1,200 calories consistently. They probably were starting to cheat. They probably don't feel it. They were putting in the effort, uh, but they were unlikely able to maintain that deficit. So the reason, so um, those mechanisms that we talk about in order for our body to regain the weight, the minority of those, of those are actually metabolic adaptations the majority of them is just your willpower giving out starting to cheat here and there uh that's really the majority of them uh, of how the weight's being regained so um it is true i mean if you're 200 pounds and you drop to 150 you're carrying around 50 plus less pounds you are meta and that that tissue you lost was metabolically active you are burning less calories per day now but the regaining
0: and you need need less calories usually a lot of my patients will be like I was eating 1800 calories doc and I got down to 170 pounds and now I'm not losing weight anymore. Well, because that 1800 now is your new maintenance at 170 or whatever the weight is. I'm just using an example. You right. might have to cut it a little, if you want to go down or take a diet break, increase it back up to maybe 2100 and then later on, go back after it, let your body adapt to a higher level, higher metabolism and then go back down.
1: Right. Exactly. So, um, so from our perspective, when they use the semaglutide. What it's actually doing is it's allowing them to sustain the caloric deficit for a longer period of time, so they are able to be more compliant on their diet and sustain the results. No, no trial was done on Ozempic or Wagovi and they weren't inducing a calorie deficit. They did; they always had a dietitian, they always had a workout program uh, when they were when they were doing the studies. They weren't just taking the drug and losing weight. And if if someone is taking the drug and not trying to losing weight, they're still in a caloric deficit. They're eating less than they oh, are.
0: They're absolutely losing weight. Like I did a I did a podcast the other day we can force you to massively lose weight now. And we'll get into the medications later on. But Um. like, if you send me a patient that's 300 pounds, I can get them down to the 100s so easily now. Like in the past, it used to be, come on, you know, start taking this, do that, try this medicine, add on this. And like, we had to add on metformin and Topamax and Belvic for a while before it it disappeared. And like all these other things and fentramine, diatopropion, whatever you had to keep stacking things on. It's like, you know, they're barely losing any weight. Now right. it's like, they don't even have to try. And that's the thing, like a lot of people are like, this is like fentermine, for example, is like, oh my God, this is like willpower in a bottle, doc. What is this stuff?
1: Yeah. And it's right. like,
0: they're like, oh my God, I don't even have to try to even lose weight. I, I have like willpower. Like like one of my patients recently told me she would be at night, it's time for supper. Before she be like, oh, it's time to eat. I'm bored, you know, everybody's eating, time mm-hmm. to eat. Even though she's not even hungry. Now it's right. like, I'm not hungry at all. I'm disgusted by eating. I'm not going to eat, but I'll sit down with you guys and enjoy watching you guys eat or pig out or whatever the word was used. Right. But like, it gives them this immense amount of self-control and willpower. Like you said, probably the medications are giving you a calorie deficit, making you maintain a calorie deficit more easily right. for a longer period of time without you trying to like, will it, will it you know, like people are like, I'm just going to power through and only eat 1400 calories a day. And I'm going to be like, super strict, and then like they fall off the wagon or something happens, there's a wedding, who knows, right. you know, it's whatever it is. Um, exactly. but Um This gives them like immense control, willpower, whatever you want to call it. We'll get into the medications, I think maybe a little bit later, but I'm sure you've noticed that too, that they just like, all of a sudden the weight just starts coming off and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe how much I used to eat or now I don't eat anymore. Um So I, I think that part of the medications makes a huge, huge difference.
1: Definitely. Yeah. So when we look at sleep, kind of going back to sleep, uh, the uh, what we're looking at is that we want to make sure that the the rebound is going to mostly occur because there's increased hunger, there's increased appetite, and there's decreased willpower. So we're trying to enhance those as we're keeping the caloric deficit going. And the sleep is essentially doing that because we know from decreased sleep, there is more caloric intake, there is uh, an element of decreased burn. There is increased ghrelin levels. So it changes how the satiety signals and kind of the way we approach weight loss is essentially it's not a problem of overeating, but it's a problem of not feeling full after the meal. So you, you look at the skinny guy that's never been overweight and you're like, he eats horribly. But the reality is he probably feels full faster and he is going to carry over that horrible meal and it's going to it's going to be longer before he gets hungry again. Or, or she gets-
0: that is that is absolutely true. That one strategy I used to tell my patients is like, listen, here's what you got to do. Eat half of what you would normally eat but wait 20 minutes because there's a really long delay between your stomach feeling and knowing that it's full because there's vagal is down there and there's these stretch fibers in, in addition to the hormones and all that stuff. But Definitely. the stretch hormones and the stretch fibers, that's why like drink two tall glasses of water before you eat also works because you start that stretching sooner. But mm-hmm. wait 20 minutes if you are still hungry, like, like literally time it. I tell them get a stopwatch, watch it on your clock, set a timer, Eat, then eat half your food, wait 20 minutes. If you're still actually hungry, then go back and eat a little bit more. Don't go eat the whole thing, the whole other half. But you'll notice that a lot of people like, you know what, Doc, I, I did what you said and I lost 70 pounds because you're, the, the signaling, the satiety signaling is delayed in yeah. the norm, in, in normal humans. And maybe, you know, with people, people with obesity also have a lot of like dysfunctional appetite. I mean, the studies have shown that too, that Definitely, if yeah. you are obese and not active, You have a dysregulated appetite. You don't know really when you're full or it takes a really long time before you're actually full and you're not really sure when you're um, hungry. Um, so a dysregulated appetite, we have found, like you said, that if you were to exercise, even if it's just walking, uh, walk a little bit after a meal or just somewhere throughout the day, walk a little bit, um, your appetite dysregulation will slowly improve. Same thing with this kind of strategy of like waiting 20 minutes, let your stomach realize that it's actually full to turn off that you know brain hunger uh, so that you don't have to eat the other half of the the rest of your calories. So I think even before medications, we've had strategies like that, and it definitely seems uh, to have helped. There was a study, and I have it in my really long YouTube lecture. Maybe I'll link it below. Um, but there was a lot of studies on that that dysregulated appetite and just a little bit of activity. And it also had to do with like, how obese you were. The more mm-hmm. obese you were and the less active you were, the more dysregulated your appetite is. So a lot of what you're talking about probably helps reset that. Um, And I know like with some of the medications, it just jack up your metabolism too. But, you know, I think we'll we'll get into that stuff later. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of exercise, what do you tell, you know, I have a lot of patients and I'm sure you do too. You got a 370, 420 pound patient and they're like, doc, I can't exercise. Look at me. I can barely get up to use the bathroom. What do you tell that kind of a patient?
1: yeah, so it does definitely depend. Uh, it's, it, it, if a person has BMIs that are significantly elevated, like we're talking about BMIs of 35 to 40, we we at this point we're gonna start leaning towards medication a little bit earlier so that we can kind of free de- free them up and not hurt their joints, so get them out there, get them walking again. So if I get somebody who's four hundred pounds, I start on medication. I get fifty pounds off. All of a sudden, I'm going to save his joints, and now he can start doing the walking. Suddenly, the weight's really coming off because we kind of opened up that door for him, and then we're more able to wean off the medications afterwards. So it really depends on where the person is. Um, I, I, sometimes I like to remind people that I'm an obesity doctor, so the patients I'm dealing with, I have obesity, and obesity is leading to other medical problems, as opposed to just like you have a BMI of twenty-seven and you're trying to look, you know, get the six-pack abs. I may, I might not be the best person to talk to about that. You know there's there's a lot of bodybuilders a lot of people on on tick and stuff like that, that that know that stuff uh better than i do um so uh but typically we 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 like to start we i we separate exercises into four categories essentially we have aerobic like uh low level aerobic like walking light level stuff where you can still have a conversation resistance training uh mobility stability so like stretching flexibility. Yoga, yeah flexibility and then the third is like high intensity interval training so, um, because we're not really training athletes, we're training more for, um, for health. We like to start off with uh, low level aerobic training. So make sure they're getting their steps in. Uh, I mean, some of our patients would start off with like less than 1000, 2000 steps per day. So we need to get that like above 7,000 uh, steps per day and usually a half an hour walk and get you there. And then we like to do resistance training because a lot of them have never done resistance training before. And that's where you really see the best transformation, the best bang for your buck. If you do a lot of hit, you do a lot of cardio. It's great. Great for you. Uh, it's just that you don't see that much feedback, especially if you're a novice compared to resistance training for six weeks and all of a sudden you have biceps so you can flex. You're like very motivated. And that's really part of what, what we need to do. Yeah. That's, that's what we're talking about. So, uh, uh, as, as long as we can, uh, so we, we tend to emphasize, uh, low level aerobic activity to kind of get those joints moving again. And then we'll re- re- uh, emphasize resistance first. Once they've been doing resistance for a while, we'll start adding in mobility, stability, but we typically combine the two. So we'll try to get them to do full range of motion during the exercise. Uh, and usually if you're doing full range of motion on weightlifting exercises, you are probably getting a lot more uh, mobility than you would have had prior to, to, uh, to, uh, to do, to not doing any resistance training. So that's usually sufficient. The high intensity interval training depends. I mean, if I have a 75, 65 year old female who's complaining for weight loss, I might not emphasize any high intensity interval training for them. I might, it might be sufficient to resistance and just aerobic training for them. Um, so We, but, um, we find it, you know, it's effective on multiple fronts. It helps the body recomp because a lot of times people with weight loss, it's really body recomp that they want. They want to look better overall. And that's going to be a big component of that. It's going to help with the weight maintenance. It's going to develop a new culture, uh, and keep them motivated. Uh, so this kind of this new identity around fitness and weight loss. Uh, occurring, And then definitely it, it does improve their satiety signals. And we know that in mice pretty clearly, like with lack feed, that there's a metabolite that's produced with intensive exercise that uh, improves the person's satiety signals. So while the calories are not really burnt that much, you really can't compensate the calories you did with the exercise. You you probably are going to have better satiety signals. I know that for me, for example, if I go for a half an hour walk or I work out that morning, I can deal my cravings much better throughout the day than uh, if I uh, just kind of been laying around all day
0: so my, my philosophy is similar if somebody is that overweight like they're 200 pounds overweight or more i don't even talk to them about exercise because, like i said they're gonna be like doc i can't even get up to use the bathroom you want me to get up and walk like how do i even do that so for them like like you said focus mainly on weight loss first drop that first 20 30 40 50 pounds then they're like doc you know what i can i can go up i can get up i can walk around i feel good i'm doing this." Then slowly work in the rest of the modalities and get more and more intense and i obviously always emphasize just like you said not just cardio a lot of people just tell their patients oh just go for a walk no but you have to do resistance training cuz yeah. sarcopenia is real and for those you don't know sarcopenia is like losing muscle as we get older you lose more muscle a huge cause of debility in the elderly is uh, muscle loss yeah. and you can't walk you need a walker you need help getting out of a chair like you know all that stuff but the, the more exercise the more muscle you gain now when you can especially for young people if you're in your you know up to 50 maybe 60 years old and you're still qu- quite fit the more muscle you put on from now the more functional you'll be when you're 80 90 100 who knows um so definitely i agree completely uh with that um and yeah. definitely a lot of the super overweight and there there is actually a medical term called super obese so we're not making fun of them this is actually a medical term. <laughs> but for the super obese definitely start with the medications almost immediately get weight off so that they can actually do things absolutely with that so so let's talk medications because i I think probably a lot of people are like you know you guys are just telling us what we know (laughs) (laughs) right i mean you know move more eat less which i get that but there's a lot of like we said like like you heard hormonal stuff you know social determinants of health and food environment you know ultra processed everything Um, All of that makes it harder and harder to eat more, eat less and move more. Right. Not all of it is your fault. Obviously, some of it you can't control. Um, So now let's hit medications. What is your approach to uh, patient comes in has tried most things you got them on your program with the cut out the fried stuff and all that. Now you want to start with the medications. Where do you start? What do you do?
1: So we'd like to do an all encompassing approach at one go when we start the medications because our goal is to stop the medications. Um, I'm a little bit in disagreement. the majority- say, that, say
0: that again. I think I missed the first part. You said so that. we
1: we we uh we start the program from the very beginning, um, kind of adjusting for ourselves that there'll be a rebound when they stop the medication, but we do plan okay. on stopping it. Yeah. So um there the there the it seems like the the kind of the culture around the obesity obesity societies and the medical societies is that obesity is a chronic medical illness. And therefore, it needs chronic medical therapy. Therefore, you have to start these medications for life if you get on them. Um, and and uh, the ones that they're going to be emphasizing is the GLP-1s because those seem to be the safest to be on for a long period of time, as opposed to the other medication like fentramine or contrate, which is not that effective. Um, so uh, the goal is that you start on these and you remain on them because when you stop them, you're going to rebound in the weight. And it's true that studies do show that patients who got off the medication started to regain the weight back. They don't go 100% back to where they were, but they do slowly regain the weight. But we find that it's impractical to assess somebody on these on these medications forever, because um, you have younger people on them that might become pregnant in the future and they're not studied in pregnancy. So you're going to have to stop it anyway. And then you're going to have to resume it um, if, because of insurance coverage and price of the medications and shortages. Most people are off of them within a year, whether you like it or not, because it's hard to find. Uh, people can't don't want to change jobs because they might change insurances in that regard. They have a hard time with PAs and, and the coverages are getting worse, not better with time they might get better in the future once we have like pill versions uh, of these medications, which are probably going to be around the corner. So we kind of start with that kind of uh, mentality in a sense. So when we start, we, um, we start them usually on a GLP one, if they qualify the GLP ones, just have the best track record of safety. Uh, they have uh, the least amount of side effects uh, that we have to worry out, uh, worry about, and they don't really interact with other medications that well. And they they're, they're good in other comorbid conditions. So I don't have to worry about if somebody has a history of AFib or CAD. Uh, there's a little bit of it. So let me mark. tell you,
0: just to just a brief inter, interruption, and I don't mean to like cut you off. But almost all of my patients have hypertension, AFib, uh, everything you can imagine that is worsened by stimulants. And if we have their hypertension under control and their AFib is under control, and you know, their tachycardia, SVT, whatever is under control, we still will use phentermine, diethylpropion, all that other stuff. But go on, sorry.
1: Yeah. So but we a lot we still- of times
0: that's why they send them to me. They're like you go deal with it they have millions yeah. of heart problems you're the heart guy you take care of their weight loss too
1: well if you induce AFib, fib you're going to be confident in treating it as well I'll fix it right yeah so um so typically we will we'll start off the approach by doing a GLP one and we do monitor for other medical illnesses and try to get things under control because unfortunately uncontrolled sleep apnea might uh, hinder the weight loss if they have hyper hypothyroidism it might hinder the weight loss Cushing's might hinder it uncontrolled asthma even, even. Yeah, testosterone might do it. We, ha- we have a lot of, because I'm an allergist as well, we might have uncontrolled asthma. So they're getting steroids like every two months for the uncontrolled asthma. So we have to get that under control. Uh, they can't go for walks outside because they start sneezing all the time. We have we might have to get that under control. And then medications, we might ask uh, the PCPs to change some medications around. If they're like on atenolol, which is not a great blood pressure medication, we might ask them, hey, like, can you do a calcium channel blocker instead? And try to wean off the beta or blocker. Or
0: lisinopril. You know, and lisinopril actually has a side effect that is weight loss. Yeah, metoprolol mm-hmm. and atenolol, those two specifically, zero blood pressure. Like they literally mm-hmm. just slow your heart down. Yeah. Um, the other ones do have some blood pressure control, but lisinopril, ACE inhibitor, viper venom, you know, is where it comes from. Yeah. That actually does have a as a side effect, actual weight loss. So, yeah.
1: you see any weight loss with uh, hydrochlorothiazide? The just a little bit work. of
0: water weight. It's a diuretic for like two or three days. And then after that, it's not. It's a more oh. of an uh, arterial dilator. So all of those are like minimal, even amiodarone, like all this. The one drug that primaries and psychiatrists use a lot that causes massive weight gain compared to the other SSRIs is paroxetine. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's on paroxetine, and I don't know the brand name of it, but paroxetine, like we'd, ha- we'd rather have them switched to like even just Welbutrin. Because yeah. Wellbutrin actually is uh, anxiety, depression medicine that was also used for weight loss. It yeah. gets rid of like that food noise, the cravings. It was It's used for smoking cessation. I've put a lot of people on it to help them quit smoking, help people quit eating, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, Wellbutrin would be the best option of those. Paroxetine is the worst option of those. That's, you know, if you had to pick one.
1: Right. So, we do use Wellbutrin as well, and that's been pretty helpful for us as well. So, yeah. So, so we just-
0: start straight up with GLPs.
1: Yeah, GLP ones, and often we'll use fentramine. So, we'll use a lower dose of fentramine. Maybe we'll have to compound a 7.5 or use, use SEMA, uh something like that. We usually do d- both. The problem of them. is
0: getting Qsima paid for, you know, it's, just well, not, GOP it's branded, do. you know.
1: Yeah, but we can we can use straight uh, Yeah, That's
0: what I do. So, my approach is the exact opposite.
1: <laughs> yeah. I usually put fentramine. them
0: on the highest dose of fentramine, 37 and a half. And I'll say, you know what? You've not been on anything let's just try this because man, some people, it just works. And why put them on expensive injections, once a week injections. And we didn't have the once a week stuff till just recently. We were doing every day one, you know, Saxenda and whatever, right. um, Bictozo once or twice a day. Why put them on something that's an injection if a pill would work? Right. And we've had right. these pills around forever. They're generally safe. I'm a cardiologist. Obviously I can deal with the side effects. And if, you know, if they have them, um, but for the most part, they're pretty safe. So the, my, my, I usually start with that. I'll start them on the fentramine, see how much weight they lose. Now, if they come back in a month and they're like, doc, I lost 0. 0.2 pounds. Like, no, you didn't lose anything. You know, that yeah. was you like, you know, cutting a little bit of hair off the side of your head.
1: Right. Um,
0: so that then I'll be like, all right, this is not really working. So usually what I'll do f- first and foremost is I'll put them on fentramine and metformin together. Mm-hmm. The metformin also causes some weight loss. Now it's not massive it's five to 10 pounds, maybe three to 5% of your total body weight, but it helps later if they need to be on uh, Ozempic or Wegovia or any of the, you know, Manjaro that are only approved for diabetes, or like it's much easier to get it covered for diabetes than actual weight loss. Um, plus all my patients are usually already insulin resistant, have high triglycerides, cholesterol, so metformin does help lower your triglycerides. So you put them on for hypertriglyceridemia, insulin resistance, A1C, it's elevated, impaired fasting glucose. And it's not hard to prove these things. Like with, with a few little lab tests, at A1C, a fasting glucose, a fasting insulin, whatever, you can prove that somebody's insulin resistant, impaired fasting glucose, whatever, super easy. Um, you can put them on those two. That's what I usually do, I do like fentramine plus metformin together. And, and, all, and a lot of people lose weight and just keep losing it. And I leave them on that. Eventually, when they're not losing weight anymore, that's when I'll say, okay, you know what? Let's add on uh, Ozempic. And because they've already been on metformin, usually it's a lot easier to get that approved, especially if they're diabetic, obviously. Um, yeah. Makes that part a lot easier. And man, that's when you get like massive weight loss. Yeah, and, and sometimes if somebody stops losing on fentramine, like let's say for like, Six months, they're losing, they're losing, they're losing. It kind of slowed down, but they still got a ways to go. At that point, if you switch them to diethylpropion, almost they just start losing weight again because it's slightly different, doesn't have the anxiety, tachycardia, the mouth ulcers, the dry mouth. It doesn't have those kind of side effects. So mm-hmm. they almost immediately start losing weight almost again. It's kind of like hitting the reset button. Um, but that's kind of like how, how I do it. So a- after you do the GLPs, then what do you do? You add a little bit of, you add the low dose of fentermine. I keep them at 37.
1: Yeah, because I'm anticipating they might be on it for a little bit longer. So I'll use the low dose of penteramine and then I'll use metformin towards the end. And then usually when I wean off the GLP one, they remain on uh the metformin for a period of time. Uh you come
0: on, glp plus metformin. Do you take end. away the phenamine or you just lower it.
1: No, if I'm if I'm stopping one, the first one to go is a GLP one because that's the most expensive. That's where usually they lose coverage. Plus and the GLP-1. Exactly. So only stop the GLP one. We don't want the rebound, so we'll keep them on fentramine and then metformin. And then we just kind of see how they're doing. If they're not regaining the weight, if everything's okay, the hunger noise is not that bad. We typically wean off the fentramine and just do metformin. And then they just kind of uh, stay on the metformin. Uh, and then if they're doing fine on the metformin, wean it off they want.
0: And then when you when you put them on fentramine to begin with, you start with the GLP, then you add fentramine. It's a low dose though. It's not the full. You're not doing the almost 40 milligrams or any of that. Because it does come in a 15 and it does come in a 20. Some places, but those pills are usually more expensive. Some places they're capsules. So yeah. I usually just stick with the thirty-seven and a half. You can actually break them in half, the the tablets. And yeah. it's about twenty milligrams, maybe just a hair hair under. Because yeah. it's thirty seven and a half, it's basically almost forty. Cut it in half, mm-hmm. it's a little bit less. That kind of works and it's still cheap. It's still generic. You know, it's well, not like the newer, lower, tiny doses that cost it's a lot it's more. Small.
1: So you can't break in a fourth it's hard to yeah, break no, it. Yeah, no, no, you
0: can't break it in a fourth for sure, but definitely yeah. could do about a half. Half most of my patients are like they can, but almost none of them do. They just stick with it and it seems to work. So at the end of it, you take off the GLP, stick with low-dose phentermine slash metformin, and then uh, leave them on eventually just metformin.
1: Eventually, yep. And then we when kind of- When they hit
0: close to their target weight or once they hit their weight or what have you.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we'll just kind of, we we we, we, anticipate, we usually aim for a target weight of 20% of total body weight. Once the 20% has been hit, we start, we, we you tell them like, hey, if you get past 20%, if we tap the GLP one, there's gonna be a pretty good rebound, at least the back to that uh, to that mark.
0: So you so we, shoot for 20% under what you want. Let's, let's, say they wanna, let's say they wanna get to 150, you shoot for
1: 130? Oh no, no, uh, 20% of whatever the starting weight is. So if they're starting at 200 oh, I pounds. See. Okay. We're, we're talking about 40 pounds. We don't, if they say like, You know, if they're 200 and they're like, I want to be 150 because I was 115 in high school, we just have a conversation on like, realistically, let's get to one, let's get to 20%. That would be magical if you can sustain 20%. Uh, And uh, we try to kind of, and most people are happy with that. Once they get to that, it's been a hard time to get there in the first place. But um, yeah, definitely. uh, Yep. And then that's essentially, and then the whole, the whole diet program, the whole program that we do is, is, is always coming from the mentality. Not that we, it's calories in versus calories out. That is mathematically correct. But more of that, the reason why you're not able to sustain calories in versus calories out is because you have things working against you. Your satiety signals are off. So we need to correct those satiety signals and we need to correct them through different mechanisms. And we do that through, like I mentioned, like sleep, exercise, certain dietary habits, uh, getting rid of uh, temptation in the house, for example. Uh, Because even if you like if you, you know, like Oreos, you want to have it sometimes, no problem. But after you've lost 20 percent, those Oreos are going to start really calling to you. So you really want to put in, you want to have to, you have to put in effort to get them in a sense. So I like ice cream and I just had my birthday recently. So I'm about to try to lose about 15 pounds. And um, I really like ice cream. So if it's in the house, if you have like a bunch of haagen ice creams, I'm going to down them once I'm 10 pounds down, I'm going to regain rapidly. But if I have to, if I have to go to the store and buy it and put in that effort, then it's fine. I can have it. It's just, I won't be able to overdo it because I have to you put, put in that more
0: effort. barriers.
1: Exactly. Like you don't uh, keep it
0: in the house. You got to go to a gas station or whatever to buy it or whatever
1: exactly exactly so, so another, uh, thing,
0: another thing i notice, and, and i'm sure you have too and, and this is scientific like we know this oh the adipose tissue like fat tissue in your stomach trunk or area of legs arms whatever it's metabolically active so mm-hmm. a lot of times once people lose a lot of that weight let's say they lose 20 percent of their body weight 25 what have you um that, those those hormones and that metabolically active fat tissue is a lot less you notice that a lot of uh, people no longer have as much food noise. Like, you know how we're talking about the dysregulated appetite. When you lose a lot of that weight, your appetite becomes a little more normal or more regulated so that you are feeling full when you're supposed to. You are feeling hungry when you're supposed to. The the metabolically active part of the fat tissue that you have, now that a lot of it is gone, seems Mm -hmm. to settle in and the food noise and the hunger cravings and all that stuff your appetite is more regulated or at least more back to a normal, closer to a normal baseline than exactly. what it was before when you're way more overweight. I'm sure you've noticed that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and then typically because when to go into a sustainable calorie deficit without feeling hungry all the time, you typically have to eat whole food sources. And once you start doing that, your satiety signals start improving. So you had mentioned, for example, your delayed satiety signals. Um, so we, the way we look at it is that there is a delay in satiety signals, but it's not actually a delay. It's reasonable for the food that your body is designed to eat. Now you're just consuming food that you're able to absorb too quickly. And now it's, it seems delayed, but the reality is you're just eating too fast. Uh, so with Kevin Hall's experiment, they found that the calories per second was significantly increased with ultra processed foods. Meaning for the they're eating
0: per second.
1: Yeah. So they're essentially explain that
0: for our listeners.
1: So essentially they're eating faster than whole food sources. So if you can imagine an apple, I have to bite it, chew it, and then swallow it. And the, the every calorie with every bite is less. Than the calories i can do if i was eating a piece of pizza so the pizza or drinking the apple juice or drinking the apple juice exactly so having that piece of pizza every single bite might be i don't know i'm going to throw out a number like 30 calories per second and then if i'm eating an apple i might be having 10 calories per second so that delay in satiety signals are designed for apples they weren't designed for pizzas right uh so uh so you can imagine if you were out in the wilderness most of these foods they require quite a bit of metabolic magic in order to, to get the nutrition out of when you're eating, for example, apples or celery or things like that. So we have to cook them. I mean, we digest our foods outside our bodies. We have to cook them. We have to manipulate the food in some way to get the nutrition out of the food. And um, and now we just become so good at it that we can essentially just be drinking oil and the calories per second start becoming significantly faster. So one way to slow yourself down is simply to eat whole food sources. They're just chewier. They take longer to eat uh, and they they take time to prepare. Uh, The more process they
0: take a lot longer time to digest, you know, because the the sugar in the apple and the calories in the apple is surrounded by the peel, the fiber, you know, all that fibrous material. To get at it, your stomach is going to have to like really churn it and chop it up if you didn't chew it as well, as opposed to just drinking the apple juice and like the calories, the sugar is instantly available, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then some of those calories are going to get lowered because you can not absorb all the calories out of the apple. I'm going to use the apple as an example. We can use any uh, high fiber food. So some of those calories are going to end up not being digested in the beginning of the gut in the duodenum, and they're going to get down to the ileum. So they'll start activating a part of the gut called the ileal break, where essentially the once the ileum senses nutrition, it slows down the entire gut. It's almost like we are full. We need time to absorb. So that ileal break is like another satiety mechanism being activated that I'm fuller for longer because the nutrition is getting down to the ileum. And then once you get more nutrition down into the colon, because you need nutrition in the colon for the gut microbiome, they'll start eating it up and they'll start producing things like uh, short-chain amino acids. And those appear to help help as a satiety mechanism. And then you'll also start burning more calories just through the the depositing calories. The microbiome itself in the gut probably burns as many calories as uh, like a kidney does. So it's like you have a new organ that's being built. So um, towards the end of our diet, we will start recommending foods that are that we kind of almost give like a prescription. So we usually recommend that they have like at least one of each one of these foods a day. And then after that, they can kind of eat what they want to do. So usually it's legume, a whole grain, fruits, something fermented, uh, something green. And And this is
0: these are to rebuild your microbiome. Right. You told me about this before. Go through those real quick, you know, one by one so we can, you know, kind of document and put it in there.
1: Sure. So um, we want to ferment it. So every day we want a whole grain. Um, it could be like brown rice. It could be a uh, uh, whole grain, whole, whole wheat uh, bread. But usually you got to make it on your own. It can't be something you buy from the store because most of those are actually ultra processed. It could be sourdough bread. Uh, it can be bulgur. It could be uh, uh, all the like bulgur, uh, rye. I'm trying to think of other ones. So like, like t-
0: tabbouleh would be a good one.
1: Tabbouleh is a good one. That one hit, would hit too because you'd hit the, Almost
0: everything, right? Except yeah. the beans maybe.
1: Right. And this is very, very prevalent in Mediterranean diets. Like we, we, uh, we forget how much like couscous is and stuff or, uh, or bulgur and they just they'll mix it with everything. Even like uh, if you have like the chickpeas,
0: the sesame seeds, all that stuff.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so that's a whole grain. We want a little bit of that. It doesn't have to be a lot, but just a little bit of that every day. We want one legume per day. So that essentially means that you're going to have black beans, kidney beans, uh, uh, chickpeas, uh, and anything like that. Uh, peas once a day. And then we want a fermented food every day. So that's going to be something like uh, I usually will have kefir. You can have maybe a little bit of Greek yogurt. It can be uh, anything else that's fermented, uh, kombucha, sauerkraut. As long as it's not in vinegar, vinegar will kill the microbiome, uh, the, the microbes. So you want something that's not in vinegar and usually has to be refrigerated in order for it to be not in vinegar. Because it's on the shelf. It usually has vinegar in it. And that that usually uh, killed the, 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 the good bacteria. Um, we want a... Um, we want a crunchy and a leafy vegetable if possible uh so tabula is great because it hits like two of those already uh and then we want um you
0: can throw some chickpeas in it too
1: yeah then it's perfect yeah and then uh typically a dark chocolate and then maybe a little bit apple cider vinegar because there is a little bit of um kind of sugar regulation with the apple cider vinegar and there are some studies on like dippers essentially people who could become like transient like this uh this very low hypo hypoglycemia they end up eating more calories at the end of the day Uh, so, um, so we want to make sure that the blood sugar levels are essentially, um, well regulated in a sense. So if you eat that every single day and then we want some fruit, so usually berries, some type of fruit per day. So if you eat all of that in a day, you're usually pretty, pretty full and you're not really having crazy cravings because you had something sweet. You had something with fat, you had something with, uh, with fiber and then just eat whatever you want kind of on top of that within reasonable reach. And then usually you're, you're pretty good. Um, and you'll, if you, if you can eat that sustain, if you can eat everything I just mentioned and sustain it, you're going to find that you're, you're not really craving that much stuff and your hunger's way better regulated um, because essentially you've, you've taken all the vitamins and all the fiber and everything your body really needs through nutrition. And everything I mentioned is pretty much the part of every single ethnic diet that aren't dealing with obesity. So that everything I mentioned is Mediterranean, like, um, uh, the blue zones, like- basically. Exactly. Like my, you know, I, uh, I think you come from a net background as well, but like for, for breakfast, it'd be very easy to have something with chickpeas or fava beans, for example, a whole grain. And then there may be some, a little, a little bit of eggs. There would be a labneh, which is like a kefir cheese. Uh, so you've already hit the fermented and you've already hit the legumes by the morning, by the afternoon, you're probably having some salad, like a fatusha or a tabula, like you had mentioned with a whole grain. And then usually dinner is going to be some type of protein or rice. Um, so you mostly yeah, hit everything, and some fruits
0: at the end of it for dessert. You know, sliced yeah. up apples, oranges, whatever.
1: Exactly, Absolutely. exactly. So uh, you've you essentially hit all those. Um, and if you just you keep doing that day in day out, you're usually pretty satisfied. Uh, and then if you crave pizza afterwards,
0: that's the thing. Like the people, like I always tell my patients, if you're if you eat higher volume food, like imagine eating a pound of broccoli, right? Yeah, or a bucket of broccoli. Let's just say, just go crazy. You know, a, a huge right. bucket of broccoli it is a lot of broccoli and you will feel stuffed and the amount of calories that's in it though is not that much (laughs) one tablespoon of olive oil will be the same amount of calories right so if you eat higher if you're hungry towards the end of the day or let's say you're trying to control calories you eat higher volume low calorie food like huge amounts of like lettuce celery, all these things we're talking about um you'll end up stuffing yourself with things that don't cost that much in terms of uh calories And it's a huge strategy. Like a lot of my patients are like, well, I get really hungry at night and I I can't fall asleep because I'm hungry. I'm like, you know what? Go eat a pickle. It's like seven calories, but you feel something salty, crunchy, you know, watery, and you feel like it fills you, you know, a big, huge pickle or whatever, like seven, eight calories. Right. Um, So those kind of strategies definitely work. One thing I wanted to ask you about is there's been a lot of research on different people's gut microbiomes where an obese person, their intestinal flora um, absorbs certain calories and certain foods differently than like a thin person. They might have a different intestinal flora where mm-hmm. they may not absorb as many calories. I don't know if they've tried like vehicle microbiome transplants or any of that stuff, but do you know of anything on, on, that, on that front?
1: Yeah, there's like, I forget the bacteria off the top of my head, like Firmicutes, I think there's like different ratios that they found with microbiome studies. Um, I know Tim Spector has done studies where they found different microbiome signatures, and they can kind of tell what foods the person's eating or not eating based on the, their signatures. So they can tell, for example, if a person's a coffee drinker or not a coffee drinker based on the microbiome. Um, uh, so, th- But th- the more you look into it, the more and more you realize that you have no alternative but to eat the sources of food, that you can't really take probiotics to compensate, because most of the probiotics are just lactobacillus and bifido, which are not they're they're um, aerobic, and most of the bacteria we're dealing with are anaerobes. So the 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 aerobic bacteria they're not horrible, but you can just you can just have Greek yogurt or kefir, and then you're good in, in terms of getting the bifido and the lactobacillus. Um, even if you have lactose intolerance, you'll start tolerating lactose better if you have kefir because then those bacteria will start consuming the lactose instead of you just uh you know uh, farting it all day. Uh, but uh um so we know that microbiome is important. We know it's important for food allergies. We know the absorption of foods are is abnormal in pa- patients with food allergies and how their body deals with the, uh, the, 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 the food allergies. We know the microbiome is important with Crohn's disease or also with colitis. So it, it definitely is effective in every single um, element. We know people who exercise have different microbiomes than those who don't exercise. But it's usually just another uh, emphasis on the lifestyle measures and how they're going to improve your health as opposed to doing something to try to manipulate the microbiome on your own to try to get yourself to lose weight. I haven't found that help at all. Everybody takes probiotics. I've never yeah, found that. I don't
0: help. I don't think it's like a huge difference and I think it's probably an evolving field. Mm-hmm. I don't I think we'll we'll know more about it, I'm sure, down the road. But for now, obviously what we're talking about in terms of weight loss, doing the basics like what we're talking about is and and if you need medicine, obviously have a doctor help you with that. Um yeah. one thing that always people bring up is that they lose lean body mass when they're when you when they're on these GLP-1s and that the public thinks it's like this huge scare. Oh my God, these GLP-1s are causing you to lose muscle. My, my Like the, the the science and research, it's not the medication, it's the quick weight loss. Anytime mm-hmm. somebody loses weight quickly, about 20 to 25-ish percent, or up to even 30% of the, the weight you lost is going to be lean body mass. That doesn't necessarily always mean muscle. It's like organs, water, glycogen, you know, even bone mineral density, whatever. You're losing that more because of the quick weight loss. If that's why we always tell people, the slower you lose weight, if you maintain protein intake and you lift weights, you're less likely to lose muscle. Have you noticed a huge controversy about that? Are people talking about that? Does that seem to be an issue?
1: Um, because we're dealing in the base, a lot of the patients are novices when it comes to weightlifting. So any weightlifting, usually they notice muscle gain or at least strength gain. So they don't really relate it. But when we when we do body scans on them, we do find that they have lost lean mass. But like you said, it's a lot. It, it could be water weight. We're not noticing like huge decreases in strength, but like I said, they're not like Olympic, like, like Olympic lifters that they're going to be very cognizant of the decrease in strength. But typically I think that sometimes we confuse what's necessary for the 99% of the public versus like an athlete. So if I was, if I was competing in, in, you know, like in judo championships, any like zero zero, you know, 0.001 second difference is going to be, you know, championship versus, you know, there's, there's a very small margin between first and second place. So following that person's advice on what I should do to my day to day health when I have kids and I have a job and I'm not doing this 24 seven, I think it becomes very difficult uh, to do. So I don't like to focus on that too much. I have never had anybody say like, like, uh, you've lost weight throughout your life, right? You've gained and, and lost. And, yeah. and have you ever really worried about your strength gains? Uh,
0: no, not at all. I think I think a lot of it is just overhyped sensationalism. I know like Peter Atia got on the news on CNBC or MSNBC, one of these newsers like, oh my God, 30% of the weight loss is coming from lean body mass. Well, listen, people are losing weight quickly. That's what happens when you lose weight quickly. And like you said, these are not like athletes that are trying to run around and like win shows or medals or,
1: you know, Olympic, you know,
0: sports. These are like everyday people that are just trying to lose some weight. So they're a little more functional.
1: Right. So when they when they like emphasize like uh taking like the mtor inhibitors for increased longevity or taking metformin for increased longevity, how does I mean how does mtor inhibition, you know, doesn't that decrease hypertrophy? Doesn't that decrease muscle mass? So I think it is like a like if you want to live to hundred, you have to be uh, metabolically healthy, and you're going to be more metabolically healthy even with thirty percent of lean muscle uh, lean lean weight loss, um, depending on where you are. So definitely, if you're uh, you know, fifteen uh, percent body uh, body fat. And you're lifting weights. You have to be cognizant of the muscle. You're you're, you're sacrificing muscle for for fat loss if you're trying to oh, get from body weight ten percent. The
0: the muscle when you when like bodybuilders for example when you bulk or you're in a bulking season you'll put on a lot of muscle and some fat. When you shave off the fat, you will lose some of that muscle. Now the idea is to try not to lose as much. You want to mitigate it by eating more protein, still lifting weights. Your lifts will get weaker. Actually, your your especially bench press, bench press the the strength and the amount you can do decreases the most of all the lifts. I've noticed that myself personally too, but the studies yeah. um, have shown that. But obviously most of our patients are not trying to become like bodybuilders. Now we definitely don't want them to lose muscle and we want them to mitigate it as much as possible because sarcopenia is a huge you know, cause of yeah. stability. Um,
1: but, but they're going right? to regain it once they go into a calorie maintenance. So that's the yeah, other issue. Is that, exactly. is that as
0: long as they keep you know doing the lifting and the activity that yeah. they now do and all that stuff. In right. terms of the medications, again, sorry to circle back a little bit. Um, you said there might be a pill coming out for ozempic right there's there, because the, the current pill uh, form of it is called ribelsis it's a super low dose it's like 3 seven14 it's twice a day or, or once a day whatever it is I've not like I've used it a few times on people there's like almost no weight loss um you said there might be a 50 milligram pill coming out right
1: and yeah there was a study done on a much higher doses unfortunately it is a peptide a peptide means it's a protein so your body will break it down in the stomach acid therefore it won't get absorbed to the system so you have to do way higher doses i think it was like 40 milligrams and it did cause a significant weight loss and that will be uh that would probably be helpful with the shortage and hopefully they can make that cheaper than the current injection because they don't have to worry about the price of the injector and all that other good stuff right so that's one option. And then there's, um, I'm going to mess up the, the name. It's like all or Fru, through on there's another non peptide heel version. So um, it has bi- better bioavailability and it costs significant weight loss. So we're probably having a bunch of medications that are going to cost 15% weight loss. The, the, the one caveat with the medications, I think there's two, a couple of caveats. One is we need these medications for patients who are currently to need them to become healthier and, you know, live healthier lives. But we still have this obesity crisis that's happening, and we still haven't really found a way to deal with the obesity crisis. So what, right now, if you're born today, there's like a 65% chance you're going to be obese by the age of 30. So we don't want to put all of these people, you know, you know, dedicate their lives to medication in the future. We want to figure out what is causing this crisis and trying to find um, applicable ways. And for the mo- most part, it, it is slightly poverty driven because ultra processed foods are very convenient. They're very cheap. You can eat healthy cheaply, but it's it's expensive to prepare the food because preparing the food might take an hour or two. So if you're working two shifts, back-to-back jobs coming home, you you might just be too tired to sit down and start cooking rice and chicken and 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 and, and stuff like that. So th- that's one of one element of like the difficulty with uh the medications, but, but
0: also part of it obviously, is obviously choices like you can go to Chipotle almost every day, get a bowl of white rice and chicken for like a few bucks, right? So I think True. obviously a lot of it is education around that too. Like, you know, you can go eat out and still not Overconsume consume calories or make it healthier. Right. I mean, we know that. And I try to teach my patients that as much as possible. Like you don't have to go to Burger King and get two double Whoppers and two huge fries. Right. You could get away with just one, if you want right. to.
1: right? Uh, or I mean, we or saw- buy a
0: Whopper yeah. and cut it in half, you know, like, you know, right. save the other one for tomorrow. It's not even a dollar or whatever the dollar. Next, yes.
1: A lot of our patients, they find it kind of as a revelation. Where we tell them like, listen, you can just go to the grocery store to get lunch. You can just go buy a packet of strawberries, wash them and just down that you'll be really full and on some
0: fire greek yogurt zero percent you know that's like yeah. protein fruit tastes good it's like eating ice cream with berries on it almost
1: exactly exactly i I mean i typically right now that i'm trying to cut my typical lunch will be around noon so i won't eat until noon i have coffee in the morning and then around noon i will have literally those microwavable rice packets i will microwave that and then i'll split it in half i'll eat half of that one day half of it the other and then i just mix it with half a can of beans that's my that's my uh know. Yeah. And then for taste, a little bit I of just,
0: protein, a little bit of carb, well, mostly carb yeah. but a little bit of protein.
1: Yeah. And then I just down a uh, down a protein shake with that. Now I'm good for and then about two two, th- that gives me a little bit, my legumes, my whole grain, my protein, uh, like the protein shake. And then like within two hours, I'll consume like a Greek yogurt, a little bit of kefir on top. I'll put in a little bit of nuts, a little bit of seeds, and then I'll fill it up with berries. And then and then that got my fermented foods that got some of my fruits in that's how my nuts in my berries in. and then for for dinner i'll just have a, a, a light salad and then whatever's available and then usually by then i have a very hard time overeating because i'm pretty full from 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 those meals i got all of my checklist in and i'm really not craving anything else um now,
0: now do you have a i'm sorry to change gears again do you have a preference between manjaro versus ozempic or do you just pick whatever the insurance will cover
1: I, unfortunately I have to lean towards what the insurance will cover. So if they're yeah. sometimes if they have a hemoglobin of like 6.5 and they've been on it's a little bit of like, yes, hopefully they'll cover Mongero. But Monjero is uh, the better of the two because of the DP side effects of the nausea. It's, it's better tolerated than the Ozempic is. And it
0: causes a little more more weight loss.
1: Definitely. Yeah. So we just do better. Yeah, weight I
0: found loss. that like, you know, with gastric bypass, that's always been like the gold standard, the ruin why Y gastric bypass, people lose about 30% body weight. Yeah. With Ozempic, Phentermine, Metformin together, man, we are getting close. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah. That three pill or a two pill, one injection combination, man, I mean, it is like, the, I mean, we might not ever need gastric bypass again. Who knows down the future? Now, obviously not everybody responds the same to these yeah. medications, but for what I'm seeing, like on the bell curve, the vast majority of the people kind of being in the middle that three medication combination can cause massive amounts of weight loss depending on what order you put them on it and how you do it and all that. So I I'm think seeing we're very close.
1: Are, i I'm seeing the bariatric surgeons are doing more uh, of the meds than they're doing surgeries now.
0: That might be smart, but the other thing I'm seeing, they'll do a sleeve gastrectomy first, and then if that doesn't work, then they switch you to a ruin y later. So they get two surgeries out of one yeah. from people. So you're almost like double dipping. Um, yeah. but yeah, doing medications is obviously smarter. Like one time I got sent a patient, I think it's this guy, actually, they sent him to me. They're like, you need to clear him for surgery. He's 472 pounds, clear him for gastric bypass surgery, but we're not gonna do the surgery till he's under, till he, till his number starts with a three, till he's like 300 something.
1: So mm-hmm. I was like,
0: I got you, bro. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll get you down to the 300s. So he comes back. This was like April or May. He comes back a few weeks, you know, a few months later and he's like, doc, I'm 326. He's like literally dropped like 130 pounds in like a matter of months. I was like, damn, 326. All right. Well, you're probably good for a gastric bypass now. He's like, no. He's like, if this is working, I'm just going to stick with it. I was That's like, well, okay, keep yeah. at it. You know, why not? That makes sense. So he yeah, was wow. on that, th- the, the three, they met form and and ozempic, and he's just dropping weight like crazy. Um, we're giving him his life back. He's like, <laughs> he goes, <laughs> he goes, <laughs> he, goes <laughs> he goes, I can actually see my penis now. <laughs> which we don't think of as something and I'm not making fun of the guy you know hey yeah. if you're ever listening to this I'm really not but the whole funny thing is he was sent to me initially to clear him for gastric bypass but they're not going to do it till he's under 400 till his number yeah. starts with a 3 we got him down to almost a 2 yeah uh, but you know he said something really funny he's the one to start laughing actually not me I don't laugh
1: at my pain. we uh, we uh, underestimate how much is life changing for people to uh oh, absolutely uh like i i've never really like i you know i treated aller, i treat allergies all the time i think people with life-threatening food allergies people are like thankful when we get their asthma under control but it's nothing like when because it really changes their whole life it changes their confidence It changes you know the clothes that they get to buy the fashion that they get to do and it makes you just feel better all day like don't so hurt is bad when they get up in the morning they have more energy they can play with their kids more so really it, it, it really is life changing and i and i um I sympathize with the, with the, with the bias because there is this like element of like, people are really desperate. I mean, that's why there's all these fake gurus, like in the allergy space there, there isn't really that much fake gurus. I mean, some, a lot of people will say misinformation about allergy space, but like people, uh, people aren't desperate to, to kind of believe in a solution, but, but, uh, in weight loss, they are because they've been trying really hard and it's been occupying a good amount of their, their mental space. And people have been like it, it kind of affects their identity overall and to have that identity shape really, really changes their life. So it's, it's very rewarding when it, when it works out, but the unfortunate part is that there's so many factors that might be difficult for us to, um, to tackle, uh, on an individual. No, absolutely. I but I it.
0: love how the field is evolving. I mean, yeah. we're getting, we're going from man, we have medications, but they barely work. This is like, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And then now we got medications that, I can force you to lose a hundred pounds in a few months if I wanted yeah. to.
1: Right. Right. Uh, so it's um,
0: fantastic.
1: Yeah. The main thing for us has just been like trying to figure out where do we fit it in if we're trying to get people off. And I think that because a lot of the obesity space is kind of focused on remaining on the medications indefinitely. And for us, we really, we do believe kind of in a Kickstarter. Um, but usually that if we can try to get them to change the habits, kind of with like an empty canvas with the medications, the medications kind of clear out their mind so they can kind of, Think clearly about how they're going to do this practically and then try to get them off if we can. Now, not now everybody gets off. Some people have diabetes. Some people are doing really well on it and they can't change their lifestyle. So we don't take everyone off. We don't do it forcefully. We just we want to give them that option. Well, so, in
0: Ohio, we were forced to take them off. Like it used to be in Ohio before all these medications. we You could put somebody on fentanyl, but only for three months. And then mm-hmm. they had to come off for six and then they can go back on again for three months. That was the rules. They changed it recently. So oh. we were kind of forced to do that. We'd put people on fentanyl. Some people lose 20 30 pounds and then they kind of hold steady wait six months and try to go back on that was the rules um some people gained some weight back some people gained a lot back some people just were like oh cool i'm good you know yeah. so i think a lot of that kind of just depends on the the person but i think a lot of it is like a lot of my patients tell me i did not realize how much i was actually eating you know like i think that plays a huge role it almost teaches you force teaches you what you're supposed to be eating or how much or you know how to deal with that food or like what you actually need for your needs so i think that makes a huge difference too just the habits and the understanding the education you get from it
1: definitely there is a there's a huge element that's a a little bit why i'm a little bit nervous with all of the online programs that exist is because if you if if i have people who are already on like two milligrams of ozempic and they haven't lost weight and they come and see us and they're like hey can we start like the coaching program and the diet and the and like the training now we have a way harder time with them. We, and then typically, if somebody's just on one milligram, we are able to do a lot better with them if they start with us in the beginning. And we just realized that the coaching element of starting the medication with coaching is really, really beneficial. Uh, but if you just, and, and like with fentanyl, we used to see the medication thrown out all the time. People just throw the medication at them. They wouldn't lose weight. They would lose hope. They would lose focus on it. Uh, and then and, and you would ask them, they, they would say that, yeah, my appetite did go, my my appetite did go down, but they didn't know what to do with that. They didn't have uh so we really like the way we usually tell people is we're going to do what you've already known that you should do but now it's going to be easier to sustain and then after four or five months you're going to find a lot easier to come off of it because you're going to have developed all these different habits and a new identity around this weight loss because people are motivated to lose weight but they're really really motivated to maintain once they've already lost it once they see how it changes their life
0: one thing i have noticed and you probably have too is there's a lot of these random doctors they're like hey i'm an obesity physician now like there's these, <laughs> ER doc, these ER doctors that do telemedicine, obesity and like a gynecologist that does telemedicine or even like obesity. Like, dude, what are you doing? You don't even know the yeah. first thing about it. Like, where are you? You you read a paper or like you watched a video yeah. about it and you're like an obesity doctor now? Like you, you're putting people on random medications. You have no idea what they do, how they work, what to do with them. You don't, you know, give them the support. Like we bring weight loss patients in almost every month we talk to them. We look at their food logs. Like I look at their, my fitness pal, I help them set up my fitness pal. A lot of times before, you know, we start with meds even, but a lot of these doctors are just throwing meds at people. Like you said, and they're just like, go yay. Wait, lose weight. Come back. See you on video. Like, it's just insane. Like I'm, I'm licensed in 18 States. <laughs> like why, what do you mean licensed in 18 States? Like you're yeah. seeing people in Atlanta, Georgia, when you live in California, like, just cause you can shoot a script electronically doesn't mean you're doing the patient a service and right. they're paying me a hundred bucks a visit. Like I know that I get it. That's a, sounds a little bit unethical. That sounds insane.
1: Yeah. Um, a lot of I, these I are just X space too. Like they're just texting back and forth, getting the medication. And then that's essentially it. And that's why um, like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's confusing. Uh, so definitely I feel like if you're gonna, if you're going to try the weight loss or you try the medications, really invest in, like an ecosystem where they're really going to kind of emphasize the weight loss and emphasize different aspects of the weight loss and trying to get your health kind of together, because honestly you might hit roadblocks. Like if I, if I was doing an online doctor and they didn't know how to manage my sleep apnea, or they, they, if I was diagnosed with NASH and I wasn't sent for like a, like ultrasound or have that like monitored, then what are you losing weight for? You're just losing a number. Like you need to monitor those other things because you're losing weight in the end to live longer. And we want to make sure that that's, that's, that's occurring essentially.
0: Yeah. And I know that a lot of the studies I talk about, a lot of these behavioral weight modification programs, BWMPs or whatever they're called, if they took patients and they, they, they added just a behavioral weight modification, program, well, you meet with a nutritionist once a week and a dietitian or whatever it is, as opposed to just the person's like, go diet and exercise, here's what you should do. In 12 weeks, the ones that also had the nutritionist meetings and the counseling and the support group and all of that, the more behavioral weight loss modification programs you're involved in, the more weight you lost, the more sustainable it was. And the more you're able to do it on your own after the study was over, as opposed Mm -hmm. to these people are like, here's what you should eat. See you later. Do here's the exercise program. See you in 12 weeks. Those people had almost such low success rates compared to the ones that actually had the support ecosystem. Like you're talking about where they had people with them along the way to help them with all of that. So that makes a humongous difference. Um, And same thing with like quitting smoking, same thing with like, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do. If your spouse supports you, you're in a support group, your people around you are helping you, you know, all of that makes a huge, huge difference. Like accountability partners, accountability groups, whatever you want to call it. And it sounds like that's the setup that you guys have down there. Um, So I think that definitely helps. How do people get a hold of you? I'll put it all in the show notes, obviously too. You're, you're in which suburb in
1: Dallas? I'm in uh, at Irving, which is uh, um. it's so not really a suburb it's its own city. It's its own city, yeah. And then uh, Arlington; uh, those are the two. Yeah, and yeah. How Arlington.
0: do people get a hold of you? Maybe send me that stuff, and I'll put it in there.
1: Yeah. So our our website is we're Cure Allergy Clinic and Cure Weight Loss Clinic. So you can just go to cureweightlossclinic.com dot com, and then
0: sure, um, or
1: just C U R E. C U R E. Yep. How loss. you would
0: imagine it. Okay.
1: Exactly. Yep, and put that uh, up there. Yeah, and then uh, you could just search my name, Doctor Imam, Dr. Imam official.com and then or uh, follow me on TikTok. I'm, Doctor, food allergy. Uh, yeah, you
0: know what's funny is we met on TikTok. People don't know this backstory. Turns yeah. out we've actually like I was your counselor in a in a youth camp at one point, and yeah, they yeah, motivated there was like, you and inspired you to become a doctor.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were like uh, all into paintball, so you were like my counselor, and you were like this this guy. You were just starting med school. Uh, and that's you were telling everybody you're going to become a surgeon, I think. And then, uh,
0: I, and I did, I, that's exactly what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a surgeon because my dad's a surgeon. I thought I would just take over his practice and join him. That's literally totally true. I don't remember any of that, but
1: yeah. And then, uh, I remember that you were, uh, you were like, I, you were like, you had a paintball website, I think it was called paintball.com. And you had just told me like, yo, I just sold paintball.com. And I, uh, you know, like the first <laughs> paintball, I was like, oh God, this guy's so cool. I'm going to become a doctor too. And that was it. Yeah. And then, it uh, there was like a so motivated, super to
0: interesting too.
1: But yeah, and then like next time I saw, and then I think I was in medical school and I found out that you had just become a cardiologist and you had started a blog and um, you had done rotations at Henry Ford and I trained at Henry Ford and I was watching the videos on how to read EKGs. I was like, dang, this is the best video on how to read EKGs when I was in medical school. You were doing like, you were teaching a Midwestern class on how to read EKGs. Yeah. And then I popped up on TikTok and that's when I reached out to you. (laughs)
0: Dude, that is so cool. That is really cool. So you're based off
1: of, you're out of uh, Ohio area, Toledo or?
0: Yeah, I'm based out of Northwest Ohio. Toledo is uh, my main hub. I go out to some of the, you know, smaller towns like Wauseon, Napoleon, Defiance. Um, okay. But yeah, no, I'm like big on almost all social media platforms. If you type in Dr. Allo almost anywhere, you will find me.
1: Okay, awesome. Yeah, you've gotten an awesome. So you're doing great work and definitely, uh, uh, I think I uh started to like a stand again because of you. So, so that's, that's. Uh,
0: hey, I've, maybe I've saved and or prolonged your life.
1: Yeah, you know, you know, I get that.
0: I get that comment a lot. I get a lot of DMs. People are like, they don't put it in the, sometimes, they put it in the comments, but they'll yeah. give me a DM like, hey, dog, you know, my cholesterol is on I, because of you. I got back on a statin now. My LDL is only like 60 or 70. Like, thank you, thank God you saved my life. I don't know. I was crazy. I was following these gurus and these people, these you know, eat the saturated fat crowd, and I and I, whatever. They're like, I, I didn't know, I didn't realize it, but I was dying.
1: <laughs> like, it's yeah. So funny. Yeah, I know it's crazy. It's, it's, I guess it's uh, making
0: a huge difference. I mean, I like I figure if I can save one life, even just by posting all these millions of videos, if I can just save one life, it's worth it in the end.
1: Right? Yeah, definitely. I think what's crazy is that being a doctor is definitely like a lucrative profession, but selling supplements is way more yeah, lucrative. Oh,
0: absolutely. If I were to like put a supplement out there, holy smokes, I'd be a billionaire.
1: Yeah, exactly. So funny. when people are multiple, promoting supplements- uh, Multiple time
0: like, billionaire.
1: <laughs> yeah, so when people are putting out supplements and trying to sell that, that's a huge red flag. I mean, I can recommend supplements, like, but hey, you should take vitamin D, but all those supplements already exist out there. If I open up my own brand and I start promoting that, you can't trust anything I say. Everything's gonna be biased or something. Yeah, it's supplement.
0: super unethical, I think, for a doctor who's a practicing doctor to like pitch their own brand of supplements. That's nuts. <laughs> like, I think there's a way to sell supplements ethically. Like, for example, like a Lane Norton kind of guy. He sells his own pre workout and his own like protein powder. Okay, cool. That's not insane. But if I'm like, the only way to cure your heart is the special kind of magnesium glyconate or whatever, glycinate, And I sell my own because I purified, I get it from the Himalayas and the Silk Road and like make up all this junk about it. And like sell you magnesium citrate or whatever I said earlier, pre-wrapped with my own like bottle
1: You had a you had a, a really interesting interview with uh you were you were debating somebody about LDL one of the guys who were like carnivores and stuff like that and during the I was watching your debate and during it they stopped it and he started uh, posting no he started pitching his own
0: stuff oh, you was like, his dude you can't man. do that
1: and he was pitching it about allergies it's kind of like oh if I eat like if I drink if I eat desiccated uh uh, uh pig I'm gonna suddenly I'm gonna cure my uh, pollen allergy and it's like I don't even understand the physics of how this would occur. And uh, what was interesting is you were debating about LDL and you were, and he was like kind of presenting himself as an LDL expert, but then he started pitching this allergy supplement. And I was like, I'm pretty aware of the allergy space and I don't think, eating, uh, you know, beef kidneys is going to solve the pollen crisis that's occurring. No, so, no, no. Uh, but yeah, so th- I think that I mean, then you-,
0: you taught me that even eating local raw honey, like my own honey, my own honeybees make honey. Yeah. I take it right out of the hive and eat it that doesn't even fix your allergies i did not know it that help. But that at least makes sense mechanistically
1: yeah it helps so you it, it will soothe your throat it might help but it's not going to cure your allergies because it doesn't contain the pollen that you're actually allergic to uh and it's already been denatured by the time you consume it it does help because it has its own anti-inflammatory component just like you would give honey to kids to help with a cough so you can definitely do honey i don't want to like negate no, it no, no,
0: i don't do it for that reason i just do it because i have bees and it tastes like freaking amazing that's about all I thought I have horrible allergies. I get allergy shots, but I thought that it would help. I mean, I didn't notice a huge difference either way, but yeah. I just figured that was like one thing that would help. But I guess- Have your the, allergy shots helped? It seems like it, it's not like a huge difference. Like I don't, I've been doing it for like three or four years now. I mean, I can't even oh, keep track. Really? I don't know that it's made like, maybe not, I've accustomed to it slowly. So maybe I don't notice because it's imperceptible, Yeah. but I don't notice like a massive difference. But But I, but I think it's better. Because I used to take like Allegra all the time and I bear I don't take anything now. Oh, so, I used so to take that is Allegra than that. and Zyrtec and just keep cycling them. You know, yeah. one kind of loses its efficacy and I switch to another one, then another one. And, but oh, I, yeah. I feel like it's not that bad now. I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to like really quantify. It's like one of those things like if you can't really measure it, is there, how do you know it's working? <laughs>
1: I mean, when we do it, people tell us it's like life changing. That's where we're like, "Oh, it worked really well." And if they don't feel like it's life changing, I mean, any maybe
0: year. if they had like super bad allergies, like my allergies were just like nighttime congestion. And I mean, you can kind of hear it in my voice. I'm I'm very nasally, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. I have a raspy voice. So maybe that's just normal for me. I'm always like sort of congested in here, and when I fall asleep can, or I'm laying down in bed at night, you can kind of hear it or feel it the most. Sometimes when I walk outside in the spring, my eyes just start like watering, and my face almost feels like it's swelled up. So mm-hmm. I got, I have like bad allergies. I don't notice that as much anymore. Um, but I definitely well, there are some days when you walk outside, it's like, you know, like watery, drippy eyes, everything. Wow. So I don't know. I, have, I feel like it, it probably has gotten better because I, I don't notice it as much.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I, but I mean, has it
0: been like life changing? Probably not.
1: Yeah. Well, well, then off the record, we'll talk about your allergies sometime and see if we can. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: we'll do that. We should right cut this interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, wow. people. Go follow Dr. Mom. He's on TikTok. Is his main platform. I'm sure he's on other ones. I'll leave all the links in the description including his uh uh practices for weight loss and allergies. I'm sure there's a lot of uh people that could use your services. Thank you for what you're doing, man. I appreciate it. I think a yeah,
1: lot. Yeah, yeah, thank you me. for having me. I on. really appreciate it. All right. Yeah, take
0: care. Take care.